You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. We're going to be in the book of Haggai. Yes, it is a Bible book. It's uh, toward the end of the Old Testament. And we're going to be in Haggai chapter 2 this morning. If you find the book of Matthew, go back to the left a few pages. Last week we were in the book of Zechariah, and this is the book right before that. So as you find it, then if you wouldn't mind, then please standing and honor the reading of the scripture this morning. Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. For some reason, my heart has been drawn to these minor prophets, and uh, I do think there's a lot of parallels here that we could really learn from. And in the book of Haggai, Zechariah, last week, um, but as I started looking at this, I, I realized, uh, I'm starting in chapter 2 today, but uh, if the Lord gives me the direction and, the, and uh, the, just the ability to go back to chapter 1 next week, we might kind of spend a, a couple of weeks in the book of Haggai. We're just going to do it in a backwards kind of way. But, you know, everything looks different right now anyway. So we'll just go from back to front. Uh, it's a great book, some good lessons about the house of God in this book, in Haggai chapter 2. Let's read in verse 1. Haggai 2, hopefully you've found it. Haggai 2, verse 1. It says, In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, that is the name you should find familiar from last week, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do, you, how do ye see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? So they've started work on the, on the temple, but there are some in the crowd that are looking at it thinking, it's too small. They're not as impressed. It's not the same glory as the first temple. Look at verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. Fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens, and the earth, and the sea, and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts." The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. You know, they're looking at the house with their perspective, but God brings in his perspective, and he makes it all make sense. And I hope that there's some lessons we can learn from this today the title, if I'm giving a title today, I'm calling it, Remember Who Makes It Matter. Remember who makes this matter. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, your word. 
Thank you for just the way that you speak to us and the, and the way that you, you want us to be drawn to you. I thank you for giving us your word, preserving it here, and we can hold it in our hands. I pray that you would help us not just to hold it in our hands, but to open our hearts to it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. When COVID-19 first impacted our country the week that President Trump declared the state of of emergency, it was kind of hard to know how to deal with all of this. I very early in the process, I preached a message out of Hebrews 11, and I called it Faces of Faithfulness. And in that message, my primary application was for this period of time, and right then they were saying two weeks, and I think most of us knew that this was going to last longer than two weeks. But at that point, they were saying the next two weeks, we're, we're really trying to shut things down to try to stop the virus in its tracks. And I preached that, that message, Faces of Faithfulness, and in it, the application was three statements. And in, the, in that message, I said, do what you can, do all you can, and do it with all your heart. Sometimes you don't see the big picture. Sometimes you don't even really have all the details and the information. But in the end, if we will simply do what we can and do all we can and do it with all of our heart, God God is able to turn our ignorance into something helpful, into something that is for his glory. If we will just do what we can and do all we can and do with all our heart, sometimes I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but sometimes in life, you feel like that's all you can do. You don't see anything else very clearly. You don't understand what's going on. Nothing makes sense. It's a trial. There's tough circumstances. And in the end, I'm just going to decide. I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to do all I can. And I'm going to do it with all my heart and trust God to take care of the rest of it. I've repeated that mantra many times over the past couple of months. And I hope it's been a help. I know it has been to me to remember that in times of uncertainty... We simply do what we can, all we can, with all our heart, and let God work the rest out. It's amazing how simple that makes life. When, when we, I mean, why would we worry about things we can't control, uh, yet we do all the time, but we should just let God do what he can do, and we do what we can do. You know, in many ways, that's Haggai's message. The book of Haggai is named after the prophet of the same name, and he preached in Jerusalem after the Jews had come back from their Babylonian exile of about 70 years. And if that sounds familiar uh, to what we learned last week, it is Haggai and Zechariah were preaching to the Jews at the same time. They were preaching and encouraging them to get back into building the temple. Last week, we looked at the the question from the angel Uh, posed to Zerubbabel, who hath despised the day of small things. And how they were looking at this temple too small. They were looking at the foundation, and it was much smaller than the original temple in all of its glory. And they were having a tough time not seeing it as less significant. They were saying, this temple is not as important, it's not as big, it's, it's not as impressive as Solomon's temple. And by the way, Solomon's temple, I think I mentioned last week, took literally billions of today's dollars to build. Five to eight billion dollars is what some people um, think that it took him to build that temple. It was an incredible wonder of the world. And this new temple is not nearly as impressive. Some, Some 70 years before, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had come through Jerusalem and ransacked it. 
and destroyed the temple and stolen all those valuable vessels and treasures and burned down much of the city and destroyed the walls around it. He carried away most of the valuables out of Jerusalem and the captives, the remaining Jews that were there. He took them to Babylon as captives. And after a number of years, then Cyrus, the king of Persia, he conquered Babylon and he rose to power and he was much friendlier to the Jews. Nebuchadnezzar didn't like the Jews. He captured the Jews, took them captive. Cyrus, the Persian, rises, and he's friendlier to the Jews. And he actually sends a decree or issues a decree permitting them to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple and rebuild the city, resume their worship. Less than 50,000 exiles returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. And most of them were priests or Levites or religious leaders. So they weren't experts in, in building. They, they didn't have a lot of experience, uh, although they made a good start. They built the foundation, and they completed and dedicated the foundation of the temple. But their enemies came along and stopped the work for about 15 years. Uh, maybe Some of this is review from last week. I hope you'll remember that for about 15 years, the foundation just sits there. Um, there the king, uh, at that point, the king had decided that they were a threat, that, that they were rebelling. So he issued a decree saying that you have to stop what you're doing. Um, and so they stopped. But they stopped for far too long. And really, they could have gotten back to the work much earlier than they did, and yet they got complacent. And that was the focus of the message last year. They, last week, they just weren't, they weren't impressed with the size of the new temple. But in the meantime, while the temple foundation sits there with no building going on, the people started building their own houses. They, they, they were resuming building of their own residences and, and they, they had nice homes and sealed houses. Uh, we see in Haggai chapter 1 and they're living in their houses and God wants them to get busy on his house. So he sends these prophets to come and encourage them to no longer be complacent and to no longer live in fear, but to get started working on the temple of God. And yes, it's not the same. Yes, it looks smaller but the call to the Jews was to do what they could, all they could, and do it with all their heart. In the end, they couldn't control the size of the temple. It is what it is. But they can get to work, and they can get busy, and that really is the message that Haggai is trying to give them. Chapter 1 is the challenge from Haggai and the response of Zerubbabel. They hear the challenge, and they get started. They respond correctly, and they get to work. Chapter 2 is, about, is a few weeks after the work began, and they're already a little bit discouraged. I mean, last week I talked about how the foundation in our home looked so small, but the walls went up and suddenly it looked so big. Well, that's not the case here. The foundation looks small and it starts to be built up and, and it still looks small. It's still not impressive. And all they can see is the size of the temple. So God comes to Haggai in chapter 2 and he starts with three questions. And these three questions are meant to expose their faulty thinking. It's kind of interesting. We'll see there's three sets of three here. It starts with three questions to expose their faulty thinking. And question one comes in Haggai chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 3. It says, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? So the, they, the uh, Haggai comes and he asks this question. And I don't know if he was having them raise their hands, but, but imagine that we're the crowd and we're the Jews. We're trying to get in, inspired to rebuild and be encouraged to continue the work. And Haggai, the prophet, stands up and says, all right, um, who of you saw the first temple in its glory? And maybe by a show of hands, 
There was a few hands up over here and a few hands here and there and there. And most of the hands were attached to someone with white hair. Because the temple had been destroyed almost 70 years before this. So anybody in, the, in, the, in this setting right here, anybody that would have seen the first temple in its glory, they would have been the elderly folks. They would have been, the Bible in Ezra 3 calls them ancient men. I don't think that's very politically correct, so we'll just say the elderly. How many of you in here are ancient men? And some of you feel, I feel like an ancient man. So this question comes, who is left among you that saw the first house in her glory and some raised their hand? These were the men that in Ezra 3, just a little bit before this, they had sat there and cried as they saw the foundation size. Because they were comparing it to the first temple. That makes the answer to the next questions fairly obvious. In that he says question two is, and how do you see it now? Who saw it in its original glory? A few hands. The next question, okay, how do you see it now? I think they're about three weeks, weeks into the building effort. And they see this temple still as too small. Far smaller. The foundation looks small, the walls going up. If there are walls at this point, they may have been just repairing the foundation, but it still seems inferior. How do you see it? Well, they saw it as inferior. Look back at chapter 1, verse 9. Here, here's, what, here's the first message from Haggai. It says, Ye looked for much, and lo, it came too little. So they came back. They're thinking, this temple's going to be big. It's going to be great. And they're like, oh, it's not that big. Oh, it's pretty small. See, they see that this as inferior. And he asked the third question in chapter 2, verse 3. Is it not, not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Basically what he's saying, and that's a little confusing, but what he's saying is you're comparing this temple to the old temple, and you have to be honest with me. Those that are raising their hands that saw the temple in its first glory, you be honest with me right now. You're looking at this like this is insignificant, aren't you? You're seeing this like it's not important. You're seeing that like, like it's lesser than what you had before. They assumed that small meant insignificant. See, folks, here's their problem. And this isn't the main application, but it's a good point, and we need to make it because it does apply, is that looking backwards was preventing them from moving forward. Looking backwards was preventing them from moving forward. And when we live in the past... We ignore the present and we downplay the future. And we can do that, folks. We have to be careful not to assume something is less just because it's different. That's not always the case. And I ask you today, is there something in your life today that isn't the same as it used to be and you find yourself resenting what you have right now? Things are different Maybe this can happen in a lot of different areas of life. Maybe it's in a new job and, and your new job isn't as good as the old one. It doesn't pay as much as the old one. I really wish I could go back to the old one while downplaying the fact that you have a job now. Or maybe there's a relationship in your life that has changed and what used to be close and what used to be sweet and what used to be real, now it's gone or it's diminished or it's disintegrated and all you can do is focus on what you've lost and you forget that there are others in your life now that you can have a deep and meaningful relationship with. You, you ignore the present by looking at the past. You downplay what could happen because you live in the past. And a lot of people do that. I'm thinking about in this building right now, church looks different. I mean, this looks great. 
don't get me wrong, it's full. And I, we might do every other pew from here on out because it, it's spread out. I like it. But it still looks different now. We don't have everything back the way we used to. Things aren't the same. There's a little bit of fear. There, things aren't the same. And what we might do is say, well, it used to be better, and it used to be good, and it used to be normal, and now it's just this. And we don't want to downplay what we're able to do right now because it's different. God is still working in this moment. He hasn't stopped and said, well, it's not the same or it's smaller or there aren't as many people here. No, he's still working and he's still present. And he doesn't want us to diminish what we have based on what we've lost. Don't despise it because it's different. When we look, live looking backwards, wishing for what we used to have, it could cause us to miss what God is doing in the present and downplay what he might do in the future. So how do we prevent that? Well, when God uses the word yet now in verse 4, look down in verse 4, he says, yet now. See, what he's doing, he's, he said, who was there when he saw the first temple? Raise your hand. Um, how do you see it now? Tell me. And do you look at it as less significant? Tell me. And that, you know what he says when he says, yet now, be strong? He's saying, okay, stop living in the past, come to yet now. Come to right now and look at what you have right now. Stop dwelling on what you've lost and see what you have right now. It's like saying that was then, folks, but what's happening right now? What do you have in this moment? Let go of what was and focus on what's now. That's what he's trying to get them to do. And God follows it up with three questions. I'm sorry, with three commands. So he starts with three questions. Who was there? How do you see it? Is it lesser? And then he goes into three commands. It's pretty uh, great how this all lays out. Three commands in response to their faulty thinking. And the first is there, there in verse 4. He says, yet now be strong. So in order to emphasize the command, look what he does. He, 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 he says the command three times. Things are coming in threes here. As a preacher, that really makes your notes very organized, okay? So three, he's got three questions and then he has three commands. And it starts with three be strongs. He says, Ye now, yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, saith the Lord. He's the builder. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Yet now be strong. Yet now be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord. He singles out Zerubbabel, who is the builder. He singles out Joshua, who's the high priest. And he singles out the people and says, it's time to be strong. It's time to just decide to be strong. Three times he says it. How important do you think the message is? If he says it three times, I think the emphasis of, of the repetition lets us know this is important. They were discouraged. They were being weak. And sometimes um, you know, it's hard to change our thinking. But you realize that many people look to something, anything else to change their thinking. And yet very often it's simply that we have to choose to change our thinking. A lot of people will turn to a pill or they'll turn to therapy and say, help me change my thinking. But in the end, it's their choice to, to think on the wrong things that's taking them down the wrong paths. What's, in, what's interesting is God's remedy to begin fixing their thinking was to change their thinking. So now this is real deep here. I mean, I should go, write a book on, on Christian psychology. You know how you change your thinking? You change your thinking. It's basically what he says. In the end, you make the choice. It's up to you. They were feeling weak. And so God says, okay, you're feeling weak, but be strong. So we often operate 
based on how we feel. We let our emotions lead the way. And part of the reason that we struggle changing our thinking is because emotions make great passengers, but they make terrible drivers. And when we're led by our emotions, we're not thinking about truth. Our feelings are telling us how to behave. Our feelings are telling us what to do. If you're feeling discouraged and you're feeling weak and you're feeling down, let me remind you that your thoughts are your choice. And a lot of discouraged people will turn to other things to help them change their thinking. But Paul said, be anxious, be careful for nothing, but think on these things. In the end, you make the choice. There's nothing more miserable and more unstable than being led by our emotions. So think on truth. It's your choice. That's what he's saying. Be strong. You have to decide to be strong. Strong simply means resolved. It means to decide to be hard, to just make the decision. I find it interesting, too, that who he targets in this. His first target is Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel's the builder. He's the guy. He's the strong guy. He's the physical guy. He's the construction worker. He knows what to do and how to get it done. But he also then talks to Joshua, the high priest. And the high priest is the spiritual side. So on one side, he's saying, be strong physically and be strong spiritually. And I love the balance here is that God is encouraging us and reminding us that we need both physical and spiritual strength to do the work of God. And it's, we have to be balanced here. See, a lot of people will assume that I can be strong spiritually and that's all I need, but they ignore their physical part of their life. And then you have some that just really focus on the physical and they don't, they don't strengthen themselves spiritually. You need both. I mean, I would, if you're just a strong body, you're not going to make any spiritual differences for the Lord in anybody else's life. But if you're just a spiritual person and you ignore the vessel through which God has given you to serve him, then you're also imbalanced in that way. First Corinthians 6 says, you're bought with a price, therefore glorify your God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You realize you can be as spiritual as you want to be. But if you don't have a body in which to serve God that is strong and capable of doing it, then you're not going to make much of a difference. We need a balance here. And that's what God's doing. He's saying, be strong. Zerubbabel, you're the physical guy. You be strong. You be resolved. You stand up and get the work done. Joshua, you're the spiritual guy. You be strong. We need both, folks. We must be strong in our spirits, in our walk with God. But we also must give attention to our bodies as the vessel through which we serve God because we're only given one. And I feel like one to talk after a South Dakota winter. I've never had a winter like this before. I mean, many, many days I thought, I'm not going outside to exercise. And before long, you realize, well, there's some neglect there. Got to get back to it because I only have one body. And this is the body that God gave me to serve him with. And I want to serve him as long as I can and the best I can. I don't want my body to limit me. But I also can't say, well, that's all that matters. The spirit matters too. We could spend more application there, but I just think it's a point as we go along that the first command is be strong. The second command, he says here, yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, Joshua, all the people, and work, he says. So be strong is more of a matter of resolve. It's a matter of attitude. Work is to get to work. See, the second command here is important in that, listen, when, it's, when we're discouraged, it's not time to roll up into a ball. It's time to roll up our sleeves and get busy. See, after we change our thinking, it's time to get to work. 
You're discouraged because of what you lost and things look different. Get up and get busy. Choose to not only think differently, do something different. Get up and get out and get to work. You've got to do what you can and do all you can and do it with all your heart. I don't know about you, but for me, work has a way of taking my mind off of the things that are all the what ifs and focusing on the what is. When people look backwards and they grieve losses or they look forward and they dread what's next, then work will place our focus back on the present back on what's real in this moment and help us to focus on something tangible. Here's what I mean. I can't change the past. I can't alter the future, but I can hold this shovel and I can dig a hole. I can't go back and I can't make things different for what I've done and choices I've made. And I cannot control tomorrow what happens to me, but I can carry this brick and I can set it on this foundation. You know, sometimes we just have to step back from looking backward and looking forward, and we just have to get busy. You know what I love that God calls himself the I am? You know what that means? That in every moment, he's present. And he's present right now in this moment. And when we're looking backwards at what we've lost, or we're looking forward at the unknown, we ignore the present, which is an I am present God. His help is always available. And God is what is. His spirit is always with us. I love that he says, stop looking back and remember this. I'm with you, saith the Lord of hosts. It's time to get to work. Just get to work and focus on what you can do. Don't focus on past and future. Focus on what is true right now. I can work, folks. You can work. You can say there's not much I can do, but you can work. You can get busy. You can do something for the Lord when you're focusing on the past or focusing on the future. You can just stop and get busy. We all can. I can work and God will help me. That's the second command, get to work. The third command is fear not. He says in verse verse 5, according to the word that I covenanted with you when, when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. You know what he's saying? Because I'm with you, you have nothing to be afraid of. We read that in Psalm 27 this morning. If we have God's presence, why are we afraid? Folks, if God is with you, you have nothing to fear. One amen. If God is with you, you have nothing to fear, folks. Knowing that you can choose your thoughts and knowing that you can get to work, knowing that God is with us, fear not. That's what he's saying. Don't operate by fear. Discouragement leaves you dwelling in the past, but fear will leave you focused on a future you have no control of. And neither are changeable. So focus on what you can do right now. You can choose to change your thoughts instead of being led by your emotions. You can choose to get to work instead of sulking about what you've lost and being afraid. If God is present, fear not. So we have three questions, and we're coming down to the application here. We have three questions, and then we have three commands. And then we have three promises. Three promises to fix the faulty thinking. Look at verses 6 through 9. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 8, the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. 
You know what he reminds them of? He says, listen, you need to stop focusing on what you've lost. You need to change your thinking. And then you also need to get to work and you need to not be afraid. You need to live in the moment. You just need to get busy. But let me tell you why you can get busy and get to work with confidence. Because let me remind you of who I am. See, it's not anymore. Look at the beginning of verse 6. He says, for thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while. You know what he's saying? He's like, yet now get to work. Yet now don't be afraid. Yet now change your thinking. Because yet once, here in a little bit, in the future, here's what's coming. You can live in the now because you can have confidence in me that I am who I am. He says, someday I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. He said, I'm going to reveal my power to everybody else. I'm going to remind everybody of the kind of power that I have. That's promise number one. He said, God says, you just do what you're supposed to do. I will remind the earth of who I am someday. They'll all know. These are prophecies of the future. But look what he also says in verse 7. He says, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. You know who that's talking about? It's talking about Jesus Christ, the desire of all nations. Here's the promises that he's making. I've got all this power, and I will send my son, the Messiah. And then he says in in verse 9, he also promises his glory. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former. Think about these promises. God's saying, live in the now, do what you can, because I am still God, and I don't change. I still have all power. I will shake all nations. I will make good on my promises. And someday I will even send the Messiah, my son, to come to earth and die on a cross for your sins and reign as king. Someday all of that is going to happen. So you can just do what you're supposed to do and let me take care of all the rest. Listen, this house, what he's saying is this house will someday host the son of God. Jesus Christ would someday walk in these, uh, on these floors and between these walls. And it may not be as big, but will, it will have more glory. Don't judge it by its size. God's going to do some great things in his house. That's what he's saying. So what can we take away from these promises? Listen, even if the temple is smaller, the God of the temple, folks, hasn't changed. Let me say that again. The temple may be smaller, but the God of the temple has not changed. He's still Lord over all. He still owns everything. He still has all power. And no matter what changes, God still remains the same. The size of the temple doesn't affect God's presence. What matters is still the same. And whether you meet in a house or you meet in a palace, or you meet in an old building, or you meet in a new one, if you meet in the forest, or you meet under a bridge, God's Spirit has been promised to you, and His presence is what matters. And folks, I just want to say today, the look of church may change, but what matters most is God, and He has not changed. And this is true in life. Your job may change, but God does not. And your financial situation may look different today, but God looks no different. And that relationship may disintegrate, but your relationship with God can remain the same. He doesn't change. And your health may fail, but God cannot. Your emotions may fluctuate and go all over the place, but God is always the same. And we may not have Sunday school for a while, but the one who matters the most is still right here. It may be a while before the choir sings again, and that hurts my heart. 
But I'm telling you, God is still the same. And the one that matters is still here. So you can't hug and you can't shake hands like you used to. And you may feel compelled to wear a mask. That's perfectly fine. God's still here and he wants to meet with you, mask and all. If everything else changes, what matters the most is God and he has not changed. That's the message And I'm not trying to say church isn't important because us gathering is God's plan for his kingdom work to be advanced. Neglecting is not my point. Exalting God is my point. It is God's will for your life to be an active, engaged, serving, happy, joyful, growing member of a local New Testament church. And I hope it would be Eastside. If you ignore it or you don't think it's important enough to make it a big part of your life, then you cannot be what God wants you to be as a Christian in your life today. But when it has to look different, and who knows if it may look even different in the future, when it does, if it does, that doesn't mean we can't meet with God because he never changes. He never goes away. He's not affected by coronavirus. His power remains. His spirit is present with us. His promises will come to pass. And he has all the resources in the world. He says all the silver and gold are mine. He has all the resources in the world to provide for our every need, even if it looks different. And listen, he's so capable that he can overcome size limitations. He can overcome impressive feature, unimpressive features. He can over, overcome a small crowd or a big crowd. He can overcome it if we have to change our times. He can overcome it if we have to meet in homes the rest of the year. He can overcome it if we have to wear a mask. He can overcome it if everything else falls apart. God will remain the same. Amen. And he's what matters the most. When God's people value him the most... He can do his greatest work. That's the point. When God's people value him the most, that's when he does his greatest work. It's time for us to stop focusing on what we're missing. Stop focusing on what we're lacking. Stop focusing on what we've lost and what we aren't. And focus on the fact that the God of heaven right now in this moment is meeting with us. Folks, right now in this moment, his spirit is speaking to your heart. And for us to diminish what we have to do differently is to diminish the fact that his presence is here with us and he's working right now and he's changing and molding us. His spirit is ever present. He wants to do great work and he can and will if we will believe that God is what makes all of this matter. Maybe God's brought us to this place Because church had turned into something empty for us. It's time to evaluate where we were. It's time to evaluate where we were before all this happened. It's time for us to stop and think, wait, what was this like before? Did I take this for granted? Because instead of something significant, maybe it had become something busy. Maybe we'd lost sight of what makes all this matter, and that's God. Maybe it'd become routine. And maybe for some in here, yes, Sunday nights and Wednesday nights had become expendable. And I can't say it enough, when we get back, well, I'd love to see the same crowd on Sunday and Wednesday nights that we have on Sunday mornings. To diminish every, when we meet with the God, is to, to diminish when we meet as a church is to diminish meeting with the God of heaven. 
Maybe it'd become routine and maybe it'd become something stressful and that's all it was to us. Maybe it'd become something complacent and it'd become something unfulfilling. Not because it's the church's fault, but because you or I, and I've done it too, we lost sight of what this is about. We've lost sight of what makes it matter. It's about meeting with God who can shake heaven and earth and all nations and keep his promises and send his son to die on a cross for our sins so we can have a relationship with him instead of just going through all the empty motions. That's what, who this is all about. The glory of this house could be greater than we've ever seen if we'll stop looking at the peripherals and focus our attention on our Father. He's the one that makes it matter. He's the one who's the reason any of this has value. You know, if God's presence doesn't meet with us in this place, we're a social club. But we're a church because God meets with us. What was the third and final promise then? Look at verse 9. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, and saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. You know what his final promise is? Peace. God wants you to live a life of peace. He wants you to have peace down in your soul, in your heart. That means it's available, and it all just, just depends. Here's what it depends on, where we find our value in his house. If our value, if we seek the value of a church in its size, we'll always be seeking. We won't have peace. If we seek the value of church in its beauty, there will always be aesthetics that we can improve. If we seek the value of a church in its programs, and they just don't have enough programs for my kids, and they're just not meeting all of our needs. No, there's always more programs to be had. That's not where the value of a church comes. We want programs, but that's not the overall value. If we seek the value of church in our busyness, in our serving, in our activity, there's always more that can be done. If we seek the value of church in in what improvements could be made, there's always improvements to be made. No church is perfect. We're We're not perfect. Nobody claims that. But listen, we need to stop seeking value in things that in the end don't matter and seek value of this house in our real relationship with God because he's the one who makes all of this matter. And if we'll do that, then we will get to enjoy the peace that God promises his people when they place their greatest emphasis on him. Maybe it's time to strip everything else away and just be reminded of what makes all of this matter. Meeting with God. He hasn't changed. This past week on Friday, it's good to um, have Brother Hash here with us from Southwest in Oklahoma City. He did the wedding for Josh and Mallory on Friday. It was a beautiful Beautiful ceremony outside, and minus the birds, they were, Brother Hash was competing with the birds for volume. You know, I was watching that ceremony. Josh and Mallory, they, they set their date, I don't know when, a while back. I mean, uh, a while back. Mallory, you know, as a, as a lady, young lady, she dreamed her whole life of getting married. I mean, your wedding day, I mean, my wife talks about when she was just a little girl dressing up in dressing up in a wedding gown and it's like her dream she cannot wait for the wedding day you have all these dreams and all these plans and all these things that you want it to look like and you hope it'll look like and then 2020 anybody who had made big plans in 2020 was not being led by the spirit apparently because (laughs) everything's different you know we're meeting last night with 
uh, Tim and Rachel spending some time with them, and just they're getting ready for a wedding in June, and it's not going to look the same. It's not going to look like what they wanted it to be. I was watching, though, Josh and Mallory and listening to the birds and watching Brother Hash go through the, through the, the vows. And not one time in that whole ceremony um, did, I, did I hear Josh or Mallory say, this is just, this is not what it's supposed to be. This isn't enjoyable. I don't really want to be here. I hope I didn't hear him say that, but <laughs> this is not working for me. You know, I, this, this, everything's different, and because it's different, then I just don't even want to be here. No, they had to make changes to it, and it didn't look the way that Mallory's probably always dreamed about. But in the end, they weren't sad. They were happy. They were joyful. They were, they were ready to get married because you know what matters the most in all of that? Before 500 or 5, what matters the most is that God brought two people together to enjoy and share a very important relationship. One man, one woman for life. In the end, what mattered was the relationship. And so all the peripherals that had to look different didn't matter in the end. You know, coronavirus has affected a lot of things for a lot of people. Just, just this week, I'm thinking about Donna Ledoux. Her mother passed away a week ago on Mother's Day in Wisconsin. She was in a hospital, and even if Donna had wanted to go see her mom, they wouldn't have let her into the hospital. You know, that's not the way you imagine it going. Changed a lot. But you know, in the end, uh, Donna's mom had a relationship with God. And in the end, that's what matters the most. And yet, it didn't look the same along the way. But in the end, the relationship with God changes all of that. I think about Miss Renita uh, Maurer and how her mom's been in the assisted living. She hasn't been able to see her mom face to face for a couple months. They can't even talk. That's not the way you want it to go. Coronavirus has changed that too. But in the end... We know that Shirley also has a relationship with God. And in the end, it may not look the same like we wanted it to right now, but in the end, God's what makes it matter. That relationship with God, he makes it all make sense. He brings hope to every situation. He brings his power into every situation. He brings his presence and his peace, and it's available if we will make him what matters the most. Even if things don't look the same here at church, What matters the most is still here. The possibility of a vibrant, real, peaceful walk with God the Father through Jesus Christ, His Son. And if you don't have it, you can have it today. I invite you to receive Him as your Savior because that's what matters. In the end, what matters most is still here, God. So don't miss what matters most. Remember who makes it all matter both when we're here and then just in life in general. We can lose sight of the size um, because of the size or the significance or it just isn't the same. But in the end, we're ignoring what matters the most. It's our relationship with God. Let's not lose sight of that while everything looks different. Let's stand together, every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.